Herb Alpern, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. It goes without saying, listener, that no podcast has its finger more squarely on the pulse of what sporting fans want than Fangraphs Audio, which is why in today's interview with Fangraphs contributor Matt Clausen, we spend the first 15 minutes talking about the life and work of late Austrian-British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Matt Clausen is currently a Ph.D. candidate in philosophy, and through a series of dramatic soliloquies, he both makes clear and then further obscures Wittgenstein's place in the history of the discipline. After the easy stuff is out of the way, we turn our attention to Josh Hamilton and Prince Fielder, in which, if either, the Texas Rangers ought to sign to a long-term deal. The attentive listener might note some irregularities in the sound quality in the following interview with Matt Clausen. That's because Mr. Clausen lives in Canada, a country that has only had electricity for 10 years. It's Matt Clausen. It's Ludwig Wittgenstein. It's a half hour of Fangraphs Audio right now. I want to start with we're going to do baseball in a second. I think I'm going to ask you about the the situation in Texas now. It's one of the things I want to discuss. You recently wrote on Josh Hamilton and Prince Fielder and 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 how that might and I'd like to look at how that might relate to the recent signing of Darvish. Uh before that though, I asked you to prep for this and I wasn't effing around with you, Clausen. You and I were chatting briefly on Twitter. I have been trying to understand – I've been trying for years to, to arrive at a succinct description, if that's such a thing uh, exists, of Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein's work. Ludwig Wittgenstein's work, uh, what I'd say early 20th century philosopher, concerned mostly with uh, – I mean sort of a, an extreme version of logic and it, perhaps the, the limits of language in being able to capture philosophy? Well, um... And I say we're appealing... Well, I should say we're appealing to you because you're a PhD in philosophy. I'm what? You're a PhD candidate in philosophy. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. Uh, that doesn't mean I know what Wittgenstein's saying. <laughs> you know <laughs> more I, about him than well, I do. I mean, I'll, look, I'll try to keep... The, the problem with Wittgenstein, just to say simply, no, I, I like the way you phrase that. I mean, it was a provocative way of phrasing what you say, inability of language to capture philosophy. Because I, the way I think, uh, one way of expressing all of this, of course, is itself subject to uh, unpacking is, uh, Wittgenstein, I think, was the, uh, I think throughout his life, was fascinated with the ability of language to capture, and in fact, the ability of, the tendency of philosophy to get captured by language. Uh, because he, he seemed to think that uh, I don't want to put this in a way where he like thought language was bad and evil was tricking us because that's well that's pejorative. But some people tend to think that certain philosophers like they can see language as a trickster or something. And but I think what Wittgenstein was more concerned with, especially in his uh, later development, was the way in which philosophers take uh, common uses of language. Or that philosophical problems are pseudo problems that they aren't really problems that get created because we take words out of our original everyday context and give them sort of a metaphysical meaning, uh, and so we it come up with these problems of 
how to justify meaning or how do we know meaning, we generate forms of skepticism about the uh, existence of the external world, about how language works that he thinks are uh, non-problems. And so now uh, I should add a caveat here that Wittgenstein, like all in his case, great philosophers, is uh, subject to endless arguments about how to interpret him. Uh, if you think bloggers are catty, <laughs> you should, uh, you know, rule out, frankly, any active humanities journal. But, um, you know, Wittgenstein scholarships is a big battleground for that. Okay, so uh, sorry, so, I, I'm, I'm pausing here to let you get a get, get a word in if you want. No, right, and no, so so what? I like what you said there, though, um, or in that uh, about the the uh, pejorative sense that we might, uh, the pejorative way in which we might construe that that idea of Wittgenstein as a not necessarily looking at it as language as a as a trickster or something to be subdued essentially or something which is essentially uh, animated. And, and attempting to deceive us, but that that when we write philosophy, it um, there's a, I guess there's different um, the words have different meanings, or we have to be aware. Well, right. We have to tend to that. Yeah, I think for Wittgenstein, uh, philosophy doing philosophy means something different. Uh, you know, there's all sorts. I mean, Wittgenstein it embodies all the problems we're talking about when we talk about. Uh, not well. One thing, intellectual biography, but just about uh, all the things that the scholars argue about. Uh, there's this guy who uh, I forget the interpretation of Wittgenstein. I, that's a, kind of controversial, and I've become fond of. But uh, his name is Burton Draven. Taught at Harvard for a long time, and uh, he had a famous saying. But I think he actually got way of uh, his ex-father-in-law, blah blah blah. <clears throat> but he says. Uh, the Wittgensteiners talk a lot about nonsense <laughs> and what uh, philosophy generates certain kinds of nonsense. And that's that's one of the big debates. And Draven used to say, uh, I think it's Draven or Draven, he would say, uh, uh, the history of philosophy is the history of nonsense. History the of history philosophy. of nonsense is scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let me repeat that. He say, the history of philosophy is the history of nonsense. Okay. Uh, uh, but, the, but the history of nonsense... That's scholarship. Oh wow, that's pointed. Uh, so which is, is he of sort course, of like a rogue academic at some level? That's driven. No, actually, he uh, well, he was unusual because he never finished his PhD and he almost never published anything of his own. Uh, but he was at Harvard. He was well respected there. He was a dean in the '60s. Uh, he was known as sort of he did publish in things. They're very expo- uh, expositional. Uh, but he's very influential as a teacher of graduate students. There's this whole generation. I mean, Harvard actually dropped in the, the controversial lighter rankings a couple of years ago, but they have the biggest philosopher, you know, biggest name Anglo-American philosophers in the world. They all die and retire around the same time. But he was sort of a sidekick of uh, Willer Van Orman Quine, who was sort of an arch uh, physicalist, uh, materialist. Um, he would not put himself this way, but uh, uh, his former colleague Hilary Putnam, who's also a world famous philosopher, once wrote, wrote a tribute to Quine uh, called the, La- the Greatest Logical Positivist. And Draven was, in a way, I mean, uh, they would talk about uh, getting a paper uh, in front of faculty. They say, Well, Bert, and somebody asked him a question about something else he wrote. And he said, Well, Bert, what did I say about that? So Bert, Bert and Draven, in a way, was the, was the insider because he was definitely very connected 
uh, at Harvard, but he was unusual in that he just couldn't seem to write anything other than sort of collaborative papers and exhibitions of Quine, but he's very influential as a teacher. But Bertrand Redman is that interesting compared to Wittgenstein, so I'm sorry I went off on that tangent. No, that's but good, I'm going to say that but, but what but what Wittgenstein embodies, I mean, it's irritating because there's this sort of aura around him because of his personality that was during his lifetime and then what's come afterwards because he had all these very influential students and because he was such a he was an extremely intense guy with a weird kind of charisma. Um, I wouldn't call him a somebody who's fun to be around. I mean, he's extremely intense all the time. Well, that's not true. Uh, but but good as a character, which, right? But good as a character, maybe. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would. By the way, I would definitely recommend uh, Ray Monk's. If you got Wittgenstein, read Ray Monk's book, just called uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein: The Duty of Genius. Uh, might I, mean, I think a lot of people, if you don't have to be a philosopher to read it. Monk knows the philosophy, but it's a, it's very thorough. Uh, it talks about some things like his uh, his homosexuality that earlier biographies skipped over for some reason, uh, and it's uh, thorough, but it's not uh, it's not technical. Um, having said that, I think with Wittgenstein, he embodies the problems of what did he mean, you know, did he change his mind? That was the gen- generic interpretation of Wittgenstein. Because early on, he was associated with uh, logical positivism. Uh, now, I think interpretations of early Wittgenstein now show that that's, that's way off. <laughs> um, I think that was sort of an Anglo-American reception of him. Uh, understandably, that's the philosophical world he ran in, despite his uh, heritage. Uh, but then the late season where Wittgenstein is moving away from that, um, I think, you know, all the things problematic can be, it can be argued about in different ways. But rather than qualifying all these things, I would say with Wittgenstein, even early on, I mean, there's these very gnomic statements about, uh, I think, the, the most important thing he writes, the key to understanding both his early and later thought, is to try to, to grasp what he says at the beginning of the end of his first work, which is Tractatus, uh, Logico Philosophicus. Um, he says, my position serve as elucidations the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognizes them as nonsensical when he has used them as steps to transcend them. Okay. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he's climbed up it. He must transcend these propositions, then he will see the world right. Uh, I translate part of that incorrectly, but uh, it was close enough. Yeah. Anyway, but it, it sounds deep and mystical. Oh, it's all—it's all nonsense. The ladder you throw up, you throw away after you end up it, and you know. And the problem that caused, and I realize it's going on and on, uh, was that the whole book, Tractatus, that was read as, a, as an attempt to show how worlds, words, and the will connect and relate. Um, that's how people read it. And so at the end, you're saying, "Are you just saying it's self-refuting that it can't ground itself?" You're right. That just means your system's worthless. I think more recent interpretations that I tend to go with, and I'm not a specialist in Wittgenstein, by the way, is that uh, uh, I, this is not quite right. Is the book is meant to be read as a reductio of attempt to uh, ground uh, uh, our theories of knowledge uh, and logic to justify them at all? Uh, his point is that you can't get that if you can sideways on. And any time you do that, you discover you have to step back again, that there isn't that sort of standpoint. There's an illusory standpoint that you build up. And so he builds up that illusory standpoint, and then at the end he sort of pulls the rug out from under it and reveals it as an illusion. Only by sort of working through that can you real, realize it's an illusion. 
uh, and I think when you see it that way, you see his early, this is often what's said about his later philosophy, it's true of his earlier philosophy, I think, as well, that it's therapeutic. It's supposed to help us get over sort of metaphysical hang-ups, that uh, language and logic have to be justified and grounded in a certain way in order for them to work. And he says, no, no they don't. But the way we use words in philosophy deceives us into thinking they do. I'm going to... Um I'm gonna, no, no, I'm going to just make a comment to myself um, when I'm re-listening to this that I should go back and rewind it and listen to that again. That was, I, that's a lot of fun. That's, that's precisely what I wanted, Klassen. Uh, so well, now, I'm sorry. that I, I wish I had, I, had, I, had, I thought about how I could uh, whittle it down to a couple sentences, and I maybe – uh, maybe I will some other time. I, I, decided, I, I thought about, oh, Carson's going to grill me, so I'll read a bunch of stuff. Said, no, that's just going to make things worse. No, no, that would make things worse. No, I was just trusting you as a person who knows more about it than I do. I think that's great. And I like the fact that you sort of acknowledge the cult of personality surrounding Wittgenstein, which is probably, you know, how... It, it partly... It, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's probably how, how it's, come, it's come to me as someone who's, like, you know, like, been involved in humanities but never taken like a real uh, hardcore philosophy class. Yeah, well, he's the kind of guy, I mean, all great, uh, I, it's true of philosophers, and I'm sure it's true of, uh, well, I, I, I do think it's true of writers and poets, the great ones are always, uh, are, they're overrated, but they're still great. I think that's true of Wittgenstein. Uh, and for a long time, you know, because the way he was always taught to me, you know, I, you know, sounds so, I, you know, condescending. I, I went through a phase where I was an undergraduate, and I was really into Wittgenstein. Later, I got into other stuff. I thought, oh, I'm beyond that. It's not that great. And, and that was partly because the way he was, uh, the interpretations I got just made him seem like thoroughly Wittgenstein was an incoherent, mystical, logical positivist or transcendental idealist. The later one was sort of a primatist. But it was so much harder to interpret than other versions of it. I thought, what, what, why waste my time? But these other interpretations, I'm not sure he's right uh, about those things, but he's a lot more interesting as sort of this Peronian skeptic. Who's trying to? Uh, what sort of skeptic? To, uh, uh, Peronian uh, might be mispronouncing it, or Pyrrhus, or uh, something. Uh, Sextus Empiricus was this uh, uh, ancient philosopher who collected, or uh, certain kinds of skepticism. Peronian skepticism is a kind of skepticism that gets that. Uh, well, again, I'm not. I know very little about ancient philosophy uh, relative to what I should know, but. Uh, just in general, Pronian skepticism is taken to be a man. I apologize to anyone who does stuff better who's here listening to this. Uh, Pronian skepticism tries to get us to see we don't know, we know very little, but to give up those attempts to try to think that we have to know them in the sense of uh, sort of a justified knowledge in, in a certain way to sort of to. Uh, uh, Glib way saying it would get us to be a lower our expectations for what counts as knowledge or, or useful knowledge. <laughs> I, well, lower well, well, philosophically. Well, yeah, but that's that's good ethical advice too. I, that's a good way to get through life. Uh, via and that's really a part of yeah, that's part of Wittgenstein's point. That was part of the mystifying part of the tractatus, especially because it'd be this about this all this heavy stuff about logic. Uh, you know, he you know I think he had the truth tables in there and you know all this stuff. You know, Wittgenstein was. He was a genius from a family of geniuses. Uh, you know, family people like he, he didn't have any children, but his, his his the descendants of his of his siblings still have to work because of his father and grandfather. They were one of the wealthiest families in Europe. You know, uh, 
think three of his brothers committed suicide or two of them committed suicide. Uh, the other brother lost an arm in the First World War and, uh, and then after the war taught himself to play piano one hand and became a famous concert pianist again. Oh, that's so annoying. Uh, and in the family, he was not considered to be the best pianist. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, Klaus, yeah, uh, this, yeah. this, uh, the, uh, what we've been discussing here, uh, this is this is going to be. Let's uh, try and manufacture a segue. Well, speaking, of, well, you know who didn't make, you know who's who didn't get left enough money to live off the rest of his life without work. Who's that? Prince Fielder. No, oh, that's interesting. Actually, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cecil, not quite. Uh, yeah, the uh, he didn't leave. Uh, Speaking of someone who found homeownership complicated, Cecil Fielder, or adult life, maybe generally speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, well, you wrote that article on on uh, Fielder and Hamilton. You um, is it an either or proposition for the Texas Rangers? Well, that's what I, I'm not sure if it is. Uh, I mean, that's the easy way to view it. Um, Part of it is because team budgets are always sort of. Uh, I want to talk about the player, so I skipped over. I skipped over the whether early was part. I mean, other people are saying it is, and so it makes common sense. But I don't want to sit here and say, yeah, I, I have various reasons for thinking it is. An either or proposition. I, I think it probably is now they signed Darch, but even that is complicated. It's because it's not as simple, you know, as when you figure out, you know, Darvish's contract, how the how the uh, posting fee. Should be figured into that, right? Oh, right. So that complicates. So that that how it should be figured into judging Darvis's contract. And obviously, that's not what we're talking about here. But I mean, so then it becomes harder to figure out how it should be figured into figuring out uh, the Rangers' budget in 2012 and, and beyond. You know, how are they thinking about it? Um, I think it's. I mean, there's you know, there's all all this stuff. Of course, is stuff that's put out there to lower expectations, and it's part of a negotiating ploy, right? But now there's stuff today that they're cooling off on Fielder after they signed Darvish. So, I mean, there may be a question whether they can find Fielder at all, whether or not they have Hamilton. Okay, so Hamilton's a free willing. agent after 2012. Right. Okay, and they, what, they signed him to a two extension before last season. Okay, and so and so, what would it take? Do you think? To re-sign Hamilton, what would what's going to be the contract that, that he's going to be looking for after you know, or as he enters his his free agency? Well, it's you know it's hard to tell. I mean, that's a cop out, but there's because there's a lot of complicated things. He'll be around the same age. I don't have it in my mind as Jason Worth was when he was free agent, and I'm sure Hamilton considers himself to be Jason Worth's is equal to Jason Worth or better, at least equal to Jason Worth, probably. Better. Well, de- I mean, definitely well, Worth, a, we could say definitely on a per plate appearance. Basis. Yeah, but of course that's that's the problem. And I think you know, Worth's contract was <laughs> questionable for a number of reasons. I think it's a little bit too bad. I think we forget that Jason Worth is really good <laughs> with the Phillies. You know, uh, uh, yeah. there are questions about his defense, but he was a good hitter. Doesn't mean he signed to that contract. I mean, but we're not here talking about Jason Worth. Sorry, I just it was kind of crazy. I mean, I'm so much sure. Uh, I mean, I heard people even at the end of the last season saying, "Wow." What is Jason? Man, I can't believe that Jason Worth contract is terrible. I can't believe you got as much money as Carl Crawford. I mean, I heard Ken Rosenthal say something like that. <laughs> can't believe, after the season, you're still my Jason Worth's the one you're making fun of, right? Uh, so anyway, but, but yeah, so I could see, you know, Hamilton. I mean, as an athlete, he's a 
even I can tell that he's <laughs> pretty amazing when he's there. But uh, you know, he gets hurt a lot. He's played 150 games once. Um, and Fielder's been pretty dependable he, from that point of view. Yeah, Fielder's since Fielder's never played fewer than I think uh, 156 games or 153 games. I, I remember this. It, it, it was almost exact. Uh, Hamilton played 156 games his first year with the Reigns. Uh, only one, uh, Prince Fielder's only played 156 once because every other season he's played more than that. Uh, I mean, look the big the, the big question outside of true talent levels, which are arguably around the same. Uh, overall, if you take into account Hamilton being a pretty fielder and base runner, and Fielder not being those things, mm-hmm. um, if if you assume they could both play a full season, but that's a huge assumption in Hamilton's case. Of course, the question then is that uh, his old player skills with Fielder, you know, that he's a short uh, round man, and uh, the you know it's not just statistically. I think open for debate. You know, I think there's a there's scouting evidence here too that those guys maybe don't age well. But you know he's only 28. Uh, I mean, is he really going to decline any faster starting right now than Hamilton? Who I mean, and Hamilton's I mean, just as at, at Hamilton's age, and even if he wasn't getting hurt all the time, he'd be leery. So it's not only the chance of him getting hurt again, but the sorts of uh, attrition those injuries might cause in relation to his skills. It seems like in the immediate future. Having Fielder around, uh, well, I should say because for the Texas Rangers, they used the DH spot really well in 2011, and it allowed them to get uh, Napoli, to sort of rotate Napoli and Michael Young and Yorvi Torrealba um, in a really interesting way, and it gave them a lot of flexibility. I think they had like 11 players who played DH last year. and Yeah, I think you know, Napoli actually did not play that much DH, I don't think, or was it? Yeah, no, that sounds right. Yeah, I think it was a lot of Michael Young, and then a lot of other guys yeah. playing like ten games. Yeah. Um, but for example, having that spot open allows you to get Josh Hamilton back in the lineup maybe a couple days before you're ready to have him play the field. Uh, they also did that a, yeah. a couple times, maybe ten times with Nelson Cruz too. Um, yeah. You know, and so yeah, you're right though. From the injury perspective, it seems like I mean in in 2010. In 2010, Josh Hamilton um, only got 570 plate appearances, and he was still the best yeah. player in the league. Now, that's not going to happen every year because he had some sort of crazy um, batting average on ball and play. But, uh, you know, that he is that kind of player where, where if, as long as you have something above replacement level, uh, you know, to sort of spell Hamilton in the outfield – then you probably yeah. then the composite is still going to be pretty excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah. Of course, Hamilton. Uh, what do you say? He has a good lever. Yeah, he's got long, long levers, long levers, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. Levers. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, Prince is really bad at first, but the truth is, I mean, it's not all he's going to be DH right away. He doesn't get hurt when he's playing first, and uh, I think you know, if he's playing instead of Mitch Moreland, I think he can live with the glove, you know, for 150 games. Yeah. You know, so it's not like he's necessarily taking up the DH spot. Um, the thing, I mean, look, if they can afford, if they can afford him this year, I mean, to me, if Dean Hamilton a Fielder, if they can pick one of them, and this is assuming that Fielder would be a price that they could both agree on, something like eight one eighty or seven one sixty or something like that. Um, I don't know if that's reasonable for the Rangers. Like I said, it's hard to tell. I think ideally, 
the thing. I think you'll want to. If you have to choose between winning sooner or winning later, I'd rather win sooner. You know, uh, I would. I think the best case scenario for the Rangers uh, in a four fielder is to sign fielder, and they have both fielder and Hamilton in 2012. And they'll let somebody else pay for Josh Hamilton's age 32 to 37 season. Right. This guy couldn't even stay healthy when he's 29. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe he has another eight, nine win season in him. I, I don't think so. Well, uh, I mean, he's, he's a great, he's a, he's a great hitter. I mean, he's, I mean, that's one thing that I haven't known how to make an interesting post about beyond just saying, I mean, the, the Rangers don't have a lot of <laughs> guys like they can walk. It's interesting, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, yeah, it's a good hitter's spark, but they have a really good offense. And they, they have like sort of the, the anti-money ball, except for Mike Napoli, basically. Just a bunch of guys who make really hard contact and don't strike out and don't walk very much. Well, anti-money ball and, in that sort of the most sort of like the original – well, right. The proto right. money I mean, ball. It's like a, yeah. a bunch of anti tests right. or anti Adam Dunn's. Um, you know, guys who swing and hit. I mean, that's Adrian Beltre too. Uh, last season, but and Josh Hamilton is 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 sort of a is is just like that. Um, he is a good. I mean, I I don't think he's a three hundred. I mean, he's not a true down three ninety uh, balls in play hitter, but he's he's not a three hundred guy. No, I'm he's sure a, he's, he's on a, the upper he's a really end. Good yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's up there but, with like, I think maybe Matt Kemp is like, you know, he's up there like true talent 350. Uh-huh. I think uh, Matt Holliday. Joey, no. Who's that? Joey Votto. Joey Votto, the guy who like consistently. I mean, I I haven't looked recently, so I don't remember. But I think this year it was his lowest in a while. It was like 349 or 340. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah, there are there are definitely those guys who just who. Just crush the ball when they hit it. Um, and Prince, in Prince's, in Prince, you know, Prince his good years does not have real high batting average on ball and play, but they're not low either. I think, would, you know, in Milwaukee, I think some people have the impression it's a big time hitters park. I don't think that's true. It's pretty neutral overall. Um, yeah, Prince would be coming into the tougher league, into a division that uh, uh, has some really good pitchers. Uh, but I think he'd do all right in Texas. Well. I mean, the interesting thing that that Fielder did, and it remains to be seen, obviously, uh, if if this is something he's picked up or, or what it is precisely, but uh, his strikeout rate dropped uh, pretty substantially, you know, especially relative to age uh, last year. I think he had been, uh, you know, in the uh, he had spent some seasons in the 20s, maybe the the high teens, and last year it dropped to uh, dropped to 15 percent. Um, so again, you know, maybe that's yeah, he's, his peak years. Maybe that's uh, that's something a di- difference in approach. Obviously, we don't know, but um, that's that's a good side. Yeah, for that'd him. be something that'd be interesting. Something interesting to look at on a league level. Because I think Dave Cameron wrote about this already uh, early through last season. There are a lot of power hitters. Well, I should say, a couple of prominent power hitters that added uh, not striking out <laughs> to their repertoire. Uh, repertory. Whatever. Repertoire, you did it. Uh, yeah. yeah, why? Why is it uh, it's a repertory piece? Yeah. Well, Prince, you know, you know, Prince has never struck out a ton. I mean, it was below, it was worse than higher, more often than average. But he wasn't like. Uh, I mean, there's 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 a lot of people between like pre 2011 Prince say Mark Reynolds, right? right? But I mean, he was never he he was never around twenty. He was never a twenty percent 
since he became you know, started playing full time. But yeah, but Dan Hughes, I think, also really cut his strikeouts. And I don't know if that's you know it may just be coincidence. I mean, you know, league wide, I don't think, I don't know if you look at the top power hitters and something changed. If if maybe everyone decided at the same time, you know, that not you know, there's something about there's a swing equivalent to the cut. You know, the cutter the last couple of years has been the pitcher. You know, yeah, yeah, all these yeah. pitchers adopt a cutter. Suddenly they're good. I mean, maybe there's some uh, swing at like some maybe Maybe we'll cut it, call it the Sitzer, since you know they totally reworked Alec Gordon's swing and it increases contact by two percent per swing, and uh, which is what made him awesome. Not you know that they worked around the herd the last couple of years. Um. So so if John Daniels uh, came to you, Clausen, and it, this has probably happened. This is probably I'm probably this is probably something that's actually happened. He's uh, yeah. got your number on. I would say, I love your work. Garden State was terrible. No, 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 no. If he came to you and said, uh, uh, Clausen, um, do I, uh, yeah, do I re, do I resign, uh, Hamilton or, or go with this sort of market value deal, fair market value deal with Fielder, you're going to say Fielder? If, if, if those are the two choices, yeah, I would say fielder. I mean, the best choice might be to not go with either of them, right? Because uh, here's here's the thing: I unless Hamilton's going to give you the discount, I wouldn't sign Hamilton because you're just paying for what are likely to be his decline. I mean, look, great athletes are unusual; they age differently. Honus Wagner had his best, you know, had some of the best seasons in all history in his 30s. Um, Josh Hamilton's a great athlete. Am I going to bet that he ages as well as Honus Wagner? No. Yeah, you're going to get Prince's decline years too if you give him seven years or eight years. But at least you're going to get his, you know, a few more years of awesomeness probably. Right. Um, I'm not sure that Prince's decline is going to be all that more off. You know, given that, I mean, 31 years old is 31 years old. Unless you think Hamill is one of the greatest old players in baseball history, you know, uh, you don't have to go to Wagner or Bonds, right? You could talk about Mike Schmidt was on his 30s. Right. Um, uh, uh, there were other players uh, well, the, who, for some reason, I can't, I can't remember right now. No, there are, yeah, there are, there have been other uh, baseball players besides Honus Wagner, Wagner, and Mike Schmidt. Yeah, That's but a fact. I mean, yeah, but but I just think, well, partly it's because, it, uh, but most players are bad in their thirties. Never get worse in their thirties, and I just and the injuries don't give me faith that Hamilton's going to be able to break out of that, um, because, again. Past injuries are predictive of future injuries, and they more they hurt your ability to play baseball when you're sore. Um, and uh, yeah, Hamilton. So I, I'm not sure Hamilton is going to be that much better from 32 to 36 than Fielder. Maybe a little bit, but you get the good years of Fielder. But you know, maybe the best idea would just be to have Hamilton for this year. Not, you know, if you can't afford Fielder, and then not if you don't want to risk it. I mean, uh, I without. Looking, I don't know what sort of first baseman and DH is going to be on the market after uh, after next year. Uh, the free agency class in general is is deeper, um, but there's not going to be a guy like Prince Fielder out there. Right? Who is like Prince Fielder? That's the stirring question well, well, on which we conclude <laughs> this episode of the podcast. Is that okay with you, Matt? Not sure. Yeah. Not Ludwig Wittgenstein. It's dead. Yeah. Um, you, no. Did you, you have anything? You're going to be in Arizona, right? Yeah. You're going to Arizona. I'm excited to see you there. Well, uh, I, I, well, I, I hope to put together a couple stirring um, interviews from Arizona. 
Yeah. Who do, you, who do you have lined up? You now, I guess. That could fill up the entire. Oh, sure. Could fill up all the tape. Well, I was hoping you'd talk to uh, some of those Texas guys. Oh, like Thad Levine. Like Thad. I like Thad that. Levine. I, I you know, like... he made up that name. Uh, yeah. What is Thad short for? Do you suppose? Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Yeah. That, I guess that's true. Yeah. Super duper biblical. Are we still recording? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, it make you uh, because we had. I mean, I don't know. That was off the record. We just kind of uh, generally nice. You can very politely introduce some of us to these uh, Texas front office guys. We also have these things with uh, uh, some Cleveland uh, execs and. Uh, yeah. No, I don't and, think this uh, is off the. This isn't to be off the record. It was. Uh, that's part of the joy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just gonna say. Yeah. There's this sort of. You can. You kind of tell. I there's certain AGMs that are really. I mean, look, I haven't met a lot of these. Okay, I can see why these guys get talked about every offseason, right? As possible GM candidates. Yeah. Because it's not just they're smart. I mean, look, looking around, you know, rants on the blade. Almost, I mean, almost all, all. I would say all of them. Are, everyone who gets in these positions are smart, right? It's pretty hard to just bumble into it, you know. Build easy jokes aside, but uh, but you can tell some guys just have that. They're real smooth. They're not going to do anything dumb. Yeah. Right, right. They're not going to shoot off in the mouth. And Thad Levine uh, was 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 just like that. He's friendly, you know. He, he didn't look nervous. I mean, we weren't grilling him either. Uh, he's very right. confident. Who are we? I mean, the, you... he never hesitated to give an answer. He knew exactly what he was going to say. I mean, you could him interviewing well, but he'd be the person that owners want out there. Oh no, I thought he would. Yeah, he he would serve as a. He was a great guy to talk to. He was very uh, very kind to us and. Uh, yeah, and sharp, and uh, you could see him getting along, I guess, with a lot of different sorts of people too, which seems to be uh, an important skill, at, you know, at that level, because you're not just you're not just evaluating talent, you know, and and you know, or evaluating contracts. You're you're working with a lot of people, and that's kind of uh, that's going to be an important yeah. skill at that level. Hey, uh, well, well you, have to deal with, you have to deal with nerds. You get press passes for some reason. Yeah, no one knows why. That we did. We totally. There's no reason for us to be there. Hey, there's Jerks and Profar. Yep. <laughs> oh, I you were talking, looking out your window. No, no, no. He's not out my window. I don't think he would die instantly in this weather. Uh, we, we don't want. We, we didn't even get to see. We didn't even get to see him. We saw a bunch of guys that no one had ever heard of at that one. I saw Profar. Season. I saw Profar. We didn't. I think a bunch of us didn't really know the significance of Profar at the time. We didn't have that file open yet. Well, I heard him because I'd heard many of his names during the ten thousand internet discussions about. Uh, what Grinky came back from the Rangers? And of course, we ended up getting the poo-poo platter from Milwaukee. But was you know, Profar, hey, David Reed, he might be a number two if everything works out. Profar was an option. Oh, I don't. That was a speculative thing. I think JB Newberg actually brought it up at one point. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a lot to give I up. Mean, I you think know, it's like coming into this offseason, well, Profar yeah. is like probably top ten prospect. Well, this was yeah. Remember, this was this was last winter. Right. 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 Uh, it was like pro, you know. This is a you know pro far, you know, so like pro far Perez, Derek Holland, and those guys. Well, except maybe Perez. Were and yet yeah, now pro far be a totally different kind of thing because right. uh, it's one of the top shortstop prospects in baseball, right? So yeah, maybe the top one. Uh, so, and I think what I look forward to most in Arizona is not being uh, really cold all the time. Yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to be able to do it. All right, yep. all right, Clausen. By the time I get to Arizona, by the time what? 
I was quoting Public Enemy. Oh, say it. Say it then. Uh, that was it. I just said, by the time we get to Arizona. That's all they say? That's the course. Oh. I'll rap about it. They're really mad. Oh, maybe I'll get uh, Public Enemy as the theme music here. Or maybe I won't. Yeah, Apocalypse 91. Okay. All right, Clausen. Thank right. you. Have a good afternoon, Carson. Thank you very, thank you very much for joining us, Matt Clausen. Yep. All right, that's thank Matt Clausen. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> uh.